technology yeah. has changed things, but people have been sharing things for thousands of years. How do we talk about one product versus another? Can we get people to talk about our stuff, our products, and, and our ideas? Why do we share content online or products that we use? Videos that go viral on the web, we say, oh, you know, they got lightning in a bottle. I think we have this notion uh, that it's random, that it's luck, uh, but it's not. There's really a science behind why people talk. We see the same six factors, social currency, triggers, emotion, public, uh, practical value, and stories. Each of those is a psychological driver of why we talk, why we share, and leads all sorts of stuff to catch on. Do these six currencies apply to every aspect of life? We've come across some of these ideas in some of our life, but rarely do we make the connection across different domains of life. Is the internet has changed some things. The psychology doesn't necessarily change. There are lots of great products and services that we've never heard of. So how does one uh, go about changing anyone's mind? <laughs> Rather than pushing people, really thinking about change a different way and changing the strategy we use to, to change minds. Is it also applied to politics? Does it apply to religions? Why some religions do better than others? Obama ran on hope, inspiration. Trump ran on anger uh, and anxiety. Both of them use high arousal emotions and use that to drive action. We don't have to be uh, the best communicator to win. Good story is a powerful thing. My guest today is Jonah Berger, who's written multiple books, uh, one called Contagious that I read in 2013 when it came out. I think I had our entire salespeople read it and write about it. Then he wrote a second book called The Invisible Influence. And his latest one that came out, you see it in the back of the screen where he's sitting at the catalyst, yellow. And we'll talk about that as well. Now, he is a professor at Wharton uh, School of University of Pennsylvania, which is where our president went. And he got his degree at Stanford. And the major is in human judgment and decision making in 2002, which is fascinating to get a degree in that because you can use that in every aspect of your life. We're going to talk about marketing, viral marketing, how you can be more influential, and hopefully he'll have some uh, tips that you can implement right away to your life and to your business. Having said that, Jonah, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thanks so much for having me. So, so at what point did you say, I want to get a degree in human judgment? Like, how does that even take place? <laughs> you know, originally I thought I would become an environmental engineer. Uh, I wanted to bridge sort of science and, and society. I uh, went to college, taking classes in that space, sort of thinking about, uh, you know, technology, hard sciences, research, experimentation, statistics. Uh, came across the social sciences, uh, fell in love with them, and have spent a career sort of applying the tools of hard science, experimentation, uh, data analysis, statistics to social science problems and to better understand human behavior. Now, it's pretty cool because that part, I mean, pretty much what a business person does is that, your, your human, human judgment, decision-making. And I know you've uh, been advised, you've advised a number of startup, uh, early state startups. You've consulted for Google, Apple, Vanguard, General Mills, Gates Foundation, a number of different places, which is pretty impressive to have that kind of a background. But my question for you would be, your, your first book came out in 2013. From you leaving college to 2013, what did you do professionally? Yeah, so uh, I've had some work experience, but I spent a, a good amount of time getting a PhD. So I also got a PhD in marketing, uh, actually from the Stanford Graduate School of Business, uh, and then uh, started at Wharton in 2007. Uh, so had a first six years at, at Wharton doing research and other things before the first book came out. And, uh, you know, it changed my life, that, that book, a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm an academic at heart, love academic research, always have. Um, but, uh, you know, that book is out in, God, you know, 35 languages, half a million copies around the world. 
world. And uh, since then, I've gotten a chance to talk to all sorts of companies and organizations about marketing, about the challenges they're wrestling with, about getting products and services and ideas to catch on. I've learned a lot about different businesses and the way that business is done in today's day and age. Um, and it's been great to share some of those learnings, both with students in the classroom as, as well as through the books. So, so from t- 2002 to 2013, I think it's fair to say a lot of things changed in marketing. In 2002, Facebook wasn't out. YouTube wasn't out. I think that's 2004, 2006. I mean, n- not, not a lot was out yet in 2002. 2002 is still a MySpace Friendster era, I believe. <laughs> yes, it is. So, so from your involvement as you're going through this and you're learning, and I'm, I'm curious, as a college student going to become a, get your PhD, how were professors adjusting their teaching of marketing, advertising with all these new social media uh, uh, platforms that are coming out? Yeah. So, uh, you know, first in college, I read a book uh, that many people read uh, around that time called The Tipping Point. Um, and it's probably actually somewhere in the shelf behind me, right right there, still yep. one of my favorite books. Um, and that book really catalyzed my own journey. Um, you know, I said, wow, this is really interesting. It's not sociology. It's not psychology. It's a mix of all these different things and really kind of encouraged me to start studying why things catch on. Uh, there was a guy at Stanford at the time named Chip Heath uh, who wrote uh, Made to Stick and yep. Decisive and a number of other books. I started doing research with him, uh, actually, on why people share urban legends. Uh, so why rumors and urban legends get shared. Uh, let me tell you, no one's less fun to have at a party than someone who studies rumors and urban legends. You know, someone will say, oh, this thing happened to my cousin. I'm like, no, no, it's not your cousin. It's a, a rumor that's been online forever. Um, but it's really about the psychology of why we share things. L- less about sort of, you know, online versus off. Mm. Online does matter, and technology yeah. has changed things. But people have been sharing things for thousands of years, right? It's not like people waited for Facebook to share word of mouth. Even now, only about 10% of all word of mouth is online. Most of it's offline. And so, you know, really what I've studied is why people share, not, you know, online versus offline or why they use Facebook versus Instagram versus MySpace, which no one uses anymore, but really more the sort of the psychological drivers of why we share. Why do we talk about one product versus another? Why do we talk about, you know, one thing we did this weekend rather than something else, whether online or off, what drives us to share and how by understanding those drivers, can we get people to talk about our stuff, our products and and our ideas? So why do we share? I mean, for the simplest question, why do we share content online or products that we use? Yeah. You know, I think we have this notion uh, that it's random, that it's luck, that it's chance. You know, we look at videos that go viral on the web and we say, oh, you know, they got lightning in a bottle. They just must have must have gotten lucky. Uh, But it's not. There's really a science behind why people talk uh, and and why they share. Um, You know, we've looked at thousands of pieces of online content, tens of thousands of brands, uh, millions of purchases across the United States and around the world. Again and again, we see the same six factors come up. Uh, in Contagious, I put those factors in a framework called the STEPS framework. Uh, it stands for social currency, triggers, emotion, public, uh, practical value, and stories. Each of those is a psychological driver of why we talk, why we share, and leads all sorts of stuff uh, to catch on. You mind unpacking each one of those for some people who maybe haven't read the book Contagious? Sure, yeah. And so um, I'm happy to go into depth to one or two of them, but a quick overview. Uh, You know, social currency, the better something makes us look, the more likely we are to share it. Right. So we share. Uh, I met a celebrity. I got promoted. We don't share. I got fired. And, you know, something bad happened. We share stuff that makes us look good rather than stuff that makes us look bad. Uh, and so there the intuition is, well, how can we make people look good by talking about us? Uh, as, as individuals, we think a lot about, well, how do we look? We think a lot less about how does that person look when they talk about us? And so making others look good uh, triggers top of mind, tip of tongue. 
right? Uh, just like peanut butter reminds us of jelly, a lot of what we talk about is based on what we're thinking about. And so triggers in the environment can remind us to think of things and cause us to talk about and share them. Mm -hmm. uh, emotion, when we care, we share. We don't just uh, share functional things. We share things that make us feel. Uh, and certain emotions increase sharing and, and some actually decrease it. Uh, public, easy to see, easy to imitate. Um, you know, I can see you wearing a nice sort of shirt. I can buy something similar because I saw you wear it, but I can't imitate your socks because it's a lot harder to see you wearing mm. them. And so uh, we imitate what we can see, not what we can't see. Uh, practical values, useful information, uh, you know, news you can use, uh, tips, tricks, ways to be better off. Uh, and then last but not least is stories, right? Often we don't just pass on information. We share information as part of a broader narrative. And so using something called Trojan horse stories to carry our ideas along for the ride. Jonah, how much of this applies to, is it evergreen to every industry or is it specific to just business? Meaning, does this apply to uh, years ago, we're not playing magic cards, all of a sudden magic cards, every kid is playing or years ago, people weren't using, what was those po uh, uh, pokey? Pokemon. Those uh, po not Pokemon, what was those? Oh. Uh, the round things that you would hit them that you would and the hit. other ones would jump yeah, up yeah, in the yeah. air. I don't know yes. what that was, but all of a sudden everybody yeah. had them, you know, you just kind of yes. have to have one. And, you know, is it also applied to politics? Does it apply to religions? Why some religions do better than others? How yeah. much do these six currencies apply to every aspect of life? You know, what's interesting um, is the internet has changed some things, right? It's allowed information to move faster and easier than, than ever before. But let's take the principle of social currency. We like looking good to others. We share things that make us look good rather than things that make us look bad. Yeah. Um, well, that didn't start because the internet started, right? I mean, think about a caveman, right? You know, cavemen would talk to one another being, don't, don't eat that. It's poisonous. You know, look mm -hmm. at this thing I caught. We've been sharing things that make us look good forever, Right? In the 1950s, people shared what made them look good. In the 60s, the same thing. And so what I love about studying psychology, behavioral science, rather than a specific domain or vertical, is the psychology doesn't necessarily change. The way we're built, it may ebb a little bit and flow a little bit based on technology and other things. But that underlying driver of why we do what we do is true across domains. You know, you mentioned some of the organizations I've worked with. I've certainly worked with big consumer packaged goods companies and technologies, but I've also worked with B2B companies. I've also worked with political campaigns. I've also worked with, um, you know, uh, people that want to change their kids' behavior, the way the education system works. And so um, the principles are very much the same. How we apply the principles differ. We have to understand how to apply them in a given context context, you know, what, what makes a 50-year-old business executive look good is different than what makes a 15-year-old girl look good, right? They, they care about how they look, different things make them look good, um, but that principle of caring how they look and sharing things that make them look good is true across domains. Uh, based on the amount of research you've done, I mean, you got a, now, what, two decades of research in this space, maybe even more than that, because two thousand like, more than two dec decades of research in this space. Uh, your, your experience, I'm curious, what wins a great product, okay, a great marketing idea, a great sales team, a great culture, or great storytelling? So you got a great product, but you suck at the rest. Does yeah. that do better than a great marketing idea, great sales team, great culture, great storytelling? I'm curious to know what you're going to say based on all the different case studies you've read and experienced personally yourself. Yeah, so that's a, that's a tough one to answer. I'll start by ruling out what I, th I don't think is the winner, right? So we'll go, uh, you know, 
having a great product is certainly important. Uh, it's hard to win with a terrible product, but there are lots of great products and services that we've never heard of. It's crazy. Right? I, wor I work with so many you know, early stage technology companies which say something along the lines of, we've built this thing that no one has ever built before. And I say, well, that's interesting, but who needs it? And they go, no, no, you don't understand. No one's ever done this before. And I say, okay, but who wants this? What need does it fill? What customer is going to want to change their behavior to do this? And it's not just about the product being good, right? Mm. It's about everything else that we build uh, around it. Um, it's certainly important to have a good sales team. It's certainly important to have good culture and good organization. But I would say a, a good story, um, I would say a good story, I've had to pick one of those, trumps all of them, right? Uh, a good story is a powerful thing. Um, a good Good story helps change minds, helps drive action, helps propagate your message because a good story can be memorable and, and told again. Um, and so that can really be much more important than any of those uh, other things. You know, you have a great sales team. What's wonderful about word of mouth is it turns your customers into the largest sales team you've ever had, right? Rather than having, you know, five people that are great salesmen, if you can turn all your customers into advocates, suddenly now they're all doing the work for you. Rather than you having to try to convince someone, oh, it's great, let me tell you why. And I know we'll talk about the catalyst in a few minutes and the challenge of changing minds, but, you know, it's really hard to change someone's mind if you're self-interested. People know that you as a salesperson are trying to change their mind. But if their friend says, hey, I bought that product, and it was great. If their colleague says, you know, I listened to that podcast, it was wonderful, they're going to be much more likely to change. So word of mouth is much more powerful than traditional advertising and, and much more powerful than great salespeople. Yeah, you know, I'm, I don't do what you do professionally. I, I, we we uh, created a video back in October of 2015 called Life of an Entrepreneur in 90 Seconds, okay? Yeah. And this video, originally, we uploaded it on YouTube on October 30th. Uh, and we were so excited. Oh, my gosh, this thing's going to at that point, you know, my YouTube channel probably has 1000 subscribers, 500 subscribers, nothing's really going on. And Facebook, we I may have two or 3000 uh, Facebook fans. So the video goes out on YouTube titled best motivational video of 2015. Okay. And, you know, obviously, it's a very uh, unique title we gave it, right? I mean, no one's ever come up with that title before. And in 24 hours, that thing gets 2,500 views. Total flop, right? Nothing crazy. So then it's uh, October 31st. It's Friday. It's Halloween. I'm about to take my kids to the mall. I decide to upload it on Facebook uh, with the title Life of an Entrepreneur 90 Seconds. Okay. And I said on the below, tag an entrepreneur. We went. I didn't even think about it. Came back two and a half hours later. I look at it. It says 300,000 views. I'm like, what? It's got to be a mistake. I go to sleep. I wake up in the morning. It's got 10 million views in 12 hours. Every <laughs> single one of my company websites are down. I have thousands of emails and messages coming in all over the place saying this video resonated with me. It connected with me, et cetera, et cetera. I cannot believe what it says. But you're right. It is a form of storytelling that it connected with the audience when they see a story and they say, you know what? And then from there, it did change the way where customers started wanting to tell the story. And next thing you know, 30, 40, 50 million views later in the first 30 days, it's a complete different story. So how does one who's sitting there for yourself, when you watch people online, because I bet you're probably lo looking at a lot of influencers and you're looking at different marketing and brand, but specifically in this area of an influencer. So think about, I'm a person that runs a business. I run a decent business. I do five, 10 million a year, but I'm really trying to crack this you know, influencer marketing thing for myself. I want to be an influencer. People don't know me. I may have a few hundred people that follow me or a few thousand people that follow me, but I haven't had it yet. What direction, what are my first 
five moves that I need to make? I know the six steps you just gave me here right now, what the triggers are, but what are the first five steps I take to say, okay, here's how I go out and create a name for myself and I become a voice in my space as an influencer. How does one go about doing that? Yeah. I mean, I would start by focusing less on the technology and more on the psychology, right? Uh, more on why people talk and share. Who are my existing customers? You know, what do they like about me? What are the stories that they may or may not be telling about me already? And how can I build from, from there, right? If, if we don't understand the people that we're trying to reach, if we don't understand why people find our business or ideas uh, attractive, it's going to be very hard to become successful. And, and just to be clear, you know, lots of people do some things by luck, right? You know, once in a while, sure, you know, something uh, that they do and one out of a thousand things will, will hit. But if we understand why that hit, why it was successful, we can engineer it to be more successful. We did a study a few years ago where we analyzed thousands of articles from one of the largest newspapers in the United States. We did text analysis, natural language processing to understand what emotions those articles evoked. And we can say, look, you know, you add more emotion to a, an appeal, for example, an online video, an article, you're 20 to 30% more likely to make something like the most emailed list, right? It's not just saying, here's an example of a hit and here's an example of a failure, but let's codify by looking at the underlying data or mechanisms of how these things work, essentially a recipe for, for success, right? Just like you, you, know, you understand how to cook cakes, you know what to add into the mix so that it tastes better. Um, we can say, look, use this recipe and we can make whether it's our content online or our messages offline go, go viral. And I know there's a, a tendency to want to focus online, right? A lot of attention a day online. But I would say don't just think about online. Also think about offline, right? It's great if a video go, goes viral, but you don't just want that video to go viral. You want the emails and the calls and those other things that you got to happen. That's what you care about. You don't care if a million people clicked on something. You care, well, do they watch that thing? Does that thing change their behavior? Does it lead them to become a customer or a client or interested uh, in what I'm doing. And so I think at the end of the day, too many people focus on the number of views uh, their content gets online and not whether it's actually moving the needle uh, in, in terms of action. People share a number of things online that they don't even watch. And many things online even someone has a lot of followers, don't necessarily get attention. And so that's why I love offline. What's wonderful about a one-to-one -one conversation is that person's listening. Right? When you have a one-to-one -one conversation, that person is listening to you. When you post something online, sometimes the people are listening, but sometimes they may be doing two or three other things while they're watching your content. Um, and so you want to make sure, yes, it's a great way to spread messages, but don't only think online, think offline as well, and make sure to be customer-focused. Right? Make sure to be focused on the consumer, the customer you're hoping to reach, and understanding what drives them. Can you tell me what you mean by face-to-face, uh, uh, -face, one -on one-on-one instead of online? Oh, just offline word of mouth, right? I mean, I think, you know, sometimes we think about word of mouth, we think, well, you must be talking about social media. 90% of word of mouth is face-to-face. -face. Mm, uh, you know, spouses talking to one another over the dinner table, uh, at least pre-COVID times going out and grabbing a drink with friends. Regular everyday interactions, not as exciting, uh, not as, you know, doesn't have a million views, but equally important for actually driving action at the end of the day. Yeah, I know in your book, you talk a lot about the videos, examples you give and how many views they got. You gave the example of that one girl who Friday, Friday, Friday <laughs> gets 145 million views and the parents spend $4,000 uh, uh, to uh, uh, put this video together and uh, it ends up being one of the most hated videos of the year. You talk about that. You talk about the other video where 
uh, this guy's uh, selling his blender and he puts the phone in there and it turns black <laughs> and hey, this is my blender. I still have another iPhone. These videos made a lot of, you said 700%, I think is the number you said, yep. where that one company went up simply because that uh, the video that came up that, and the reason why I'm sharing this part with you, a lot of entrepreneurs, they'll message me and they'll say, Pat, you know the Dollar Shave Club company that sold $4 billion? You know which ad I'm talking about, where he's walking through with the blow yep. dry and all this other stuff. And you know what? Screw it. I'm going to buy a Dollar Shave. I'm going to join the Dollar Shave Club. I'm going to buy the membership here, and I'm going to go out there and do X, Y, Z. For somebody, Jonah, who is not great at creating these types of storytelling, like you'll sit there and tell somebody, hey, let's, let's come up with a story. Who needs to be in the room to come up with these stories? Meaning, yeah. do I, do you, is your strategy, like if, if somebody hires you, do you go in a room with five people and you ask a series of questions that leads to answers? And then eventually you say, well, if this is the motive you want, if this is a call to action you want, where do we want them to end up? And why should they buy this? And why are people liking this? What, what is the step-by-step -step process and who's in the room that can help bring out these ideas? And what are some of the questions that's being asked? I know it's a pretty loaded question, three questions within one, but I'm curious to know the actual action yeah. steps of how someone can go about doing this. Yeah. And so um, uh, it's tough to do this in five minutes, but I'll give you a sense of it. And I'm, uh, you know, this is the type of thing I do with, with all sorts of clients. But I think I start always, we start always by saying, well, imagine you could script a conversation between an existing customer and a potential customer. What would that person say? Right? Very often come and say, I want more word of mouth. I want people to talk about me. Rarely do they think about, well, actually, what am I hoping someone says? Right? And in particular, they're not going to talk about 10 different things. If they could talk about one thing about me, what would that thing be? I call that a kernel. Right? That's often what a story is built around. What is the kernel, the attribute, um, the value proposition, the differentiator? What would you want them to talk about? You have great service. Uh, you know, for that blender, for example, that video shows how powerful the blender is. Doesn't talk about how much the blender costs, doesn't talk about yep. where you can find it. All it does, it shows one thing, how powerful it is, and it does it really well. And so before you can build a really good story, you have to think essentially, what's the moral that I want that story to tell? You know, think back to a story like The Boy Who Cried Wolf, right? Uh, that's a great story. It's a highly engaging story. At the end of that story, you learn that lying is a bad idea. That's the moral of that story. Now, if I'm a brand, I can say, well, let me tell a really engaging story. But if I pick the wrong story and it gets across the wrong moral, no one's learning what I want them to learn, right? If they remember the story, but they don't remember me, if they remember me, but they don't remember why they should work with me, it's not going to be a, a beneficial story. There are lots of ads and videos that go viral that don't necessarily move the needle for brands because the key is not just, hey, I liked this story or even I remember this story, but the story teaches me something just like a moral of a, a parable teaches me something that's then going to drive me to action. And so I start with that moral or that kernel. What is that thing that you want someone to communicate? And then, right, if you're not a great storyteller, no problem. Talk to your existing customers. What are the stories that they're already telling? Talk to your salespeople. What are the stories that they're already telling? Often, you don't have to generate your own stories. All you have to do is surface some of the stories that mm -hmm. are out there already, Beautiful. right? Even if you have a five-person sales big. organization, you have 100 customers, you know, there's at least 20, 30, maybe even 40 stories that are out there already. Some of them are better than others. If you just capture some of those stories, you figure out well, which of them seem to be working already, then you can almost ask, act like a hub of a hub and spoke and push it out to the rest of the network. But you don't have to come up with it yourself. You don't have to be creative. You have to be strategic and identify the really good stories. And, and I do lots of workshops, both 
both in you know, executive education at Wharton and with clients, where people always want to jump to the end, right? They want to go to the punchline of the story and everybody's going to laugh and it's going to be great. But I often ask them to stop, step back and say, okay, what did someone learn from that story? And they go, I don't know, it's a funny story. If you don't learn anything from the story, right, you're not, your job is not the entertainment business. We're not, we're not in the necessarily as, as a company, right? If I'm selling something, I'm not in the entertainment business. I'm in the business of selling that thing. If at the end of the day, they don't buy that thing, maybe they enjoyed my story, but it's not going to move the needle. And so we have to make sure the story, the moral of that story, the kernel of the story gets across what we want it to. Very, a very big point. By the way, let's talk about your latest book, The Catalyst. Yeah. So how does one uh, go about changing anyone's mind? <laughs> you know, so I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So Contagious comes out, um, and as I mentioned, sort of changed my life a little bit. Before that, I was an academic, spent 90% of my time doing research and teaching, 10% of the time doing, you know, consulting and speaking here and there. Uh, Contagious comes out, I thought it would do okay. Um, it ends up doing much better than I ever, ever imagined. So, you know, half a million copies, 35 languages around the world. Um, and suddenly, you know, everyone from the Googles and the Facebooks and the Nikes to small startups are, are calling for help. And so I got to learn a lot about how business uh, is done in today's day and age. Uh, and I realized that a lot of people had the same problem, which is they all had something that they wanted to change. Right? So salespeople wanted to change the client's mind and marketers wanted to change consumer behavior. Leaders wanted to transform organizational culture and employees wanted to change their boss's mind. You know, startups wanted to change industries and nonprofits wanted to change uh, the world. But change is really hard. Often we push and we pressure and we cajole, we give more reasons, we add more facts and figures. We think if I just make one more phone call, if I just make one more PowerPoint presentation, uh, people will change. But often they don't, right? Often it's like nothing at all happened. And so the question I started asking myself is, could there be a better way? And I started doing some interviews. I started interviewing, you know, great business leaders, startup founders, great salespeople. I started interviewing hostage negotiators and substance abuse counselors. I started interviewing parenting experts, anyone who was trying to change minds in one situation or another. And I started to realize that there was a very different approach out there. Rather than pushing people, really thinking about change a different way and changing the strategy we use to, to change minds. And so what did you find? So instead oh, yeah. of pushing people, what was it? Yeah. So, you know, think for a moment, imagine you're in a room and there's a chair in the middle of the room and you want to move that chair. What do we often do? We push that chair, right? We push it in the right direction. We think it will go. That works really well for physical objects. And so we think the same thing is true of people. If I push someone, they'll go in the right direction. The problem is when you push people, as we all know, anyone who has a three-year-old or anyone who's tried to sell anything knows, they push back. Rather than just going along, sliding across the floor, they think about all the reasons why they don't want you to do, uh, why they don't want to do what you're doing. And so rather than thinking about what could I get someone to change, what you find great catalysts do is they ask a slightly but importantly different question. Why hasn't that person changed already? What are the barriers or obstacles that are in their way that are preventing them from changing? And how can I mitigate those, those barriers? It's, it's almost like if you've ever been parked on an incline, right? You get, in a, you get in your car, you turn your key in the ignition, you stick your foot on the gas. If the car doesn't go, you just think you need more gas. More pushing will get it to go. But we rarely go, oh, wait, there's that parking brake that's depressed, right? That's getting in the way. And so what the book is all about is, well, what are the five common parking brakes that come up again and again, those five common obstacles that get in the way? And how by mitigating those obstacles, removing those barriers, can we change anything? So what are those five? Yeah, so 
Uh, similar to contagious, I put them in a framework. Uh, the first is uh, reactance. Uh, the second is endowment. The third is distance. The fourth is uncertainty. And the fifth is corroborating evidence. Uh, together, they spell the word reduce, uh, which is exactly what great catalysts do. They don't push harder. They don't provide more facts and more reasons and more information. Instead, they reduce uh, the barriers to change. They identify those parking brakes or those obstacles, and they mitigate them. So react in, in uh, what's the second one? Uh, reactance, endowment, endowment, distance, distance. uncertainty, uh, and corroborating evidence. Corroborating evidence. So is it is it almost like you're gathering intel? Is that, is that a form of gathering intel? Is that what you would say? A, a little bit. You know, I, what I found is when you often ask people why a change didn't happen, they don't know. So you talk to a salesperson, you say, well, why didn't the customer or client buy something? Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I, I gave my pitch. I gave them all the reasons why they should do something and, and they didn't change. We're so focused on the outcome that we want to achieve, um, the thing we want to get to, we rarely stop to go, well, why hasn't that person changed? What's the barrier that's getting in their way? You know, when we go to the doctor's office, imagine you went to the doctor's office and the doctor, the first thing they said was, let me put a cast on your leg. You go, wait, wait a second, you don't even know what the problem is. We do the same thing all the time, right? Anytime we're trying to change someone, we focus on why they should change rather than starting by going, well, hold on, let me understand you well enough so I understand why you haven't changed already so I can figure out what those barriers are and, and mitigate them. Got it. So you might take in a moment and breaking down these five things individually, even if it's 20 seconds a piece. Sure. Yeah. So uh, uh, I have a three-year-old at home, uh, so I'm very familiar with the idea of reactance. Uh, but the simple idea of reactance is when we push people, they push back. Right? When we tell someone what they should do, whether it's uh, go to bed, eat your vegetables, uh, buy this product, or you know wear a mask, whenever we tell people to do something, they often pushback. They often don't want to do it. And so it's all about how we can give people their freedom and their autonomy back and, and encourage them to feel like they have choice. Uh, endowment uh, is the simple fact that we have the status quo bias. We're attached to whatever we're doing already. We buy the same products, use the same services, go to the same place for vacation, uh, you know, shop at the same grocery store. When we were driving to work, save the tame drive to work uh, every day. We do what we've done in the past because it's easier. And so mm -hmm. we have to figure out how to people, get people to let go of what they're doing already. Make them realize that what they've been doing isn't as safe as we think. We think doing nothing is costless. Doing nothing is often actually very expensive. We need to make people realize that. Uh, distance, simply often when we ask for too much, people say, well, no way. Right? When you ask for something that's too far from where they are in the moment, they're unwilling to listen. And so we have to shrink the size of our asks and uh, manage distance uh, a, little bit, a little bit better. Uh, uncertainty, uh, anytime there's something new, uh, there's uncertainty involved. There are switching costs. Uh, to buy a new product, use a new service, it costs us something to do it. And even if the old thing isn't perfect, at least we know what the problems are. With new things, we don't know what the problems are. And that uncertainty, that fear of the unknown, often stems action. And so we have to alleviate uncertainty by lowering the barriers to change. Uh, and then last but not least is corroborating evidence. Simple idea there is, you know, sometimes when one person tells us something, it's not enough to tip the scales. Sometimes we need multiple sources. Uh, we need more proof. Uh, you know, if someone says that you have a tail, there's an old adage. If someone says you have a tail, you laugh. If five people say you have a tail, you turn around to take a look. Simple idea, right? Providing more proof from multiple others can often tip the scales to drive action. So uh, essentially, as testimonials as the last one. A, a little bit, but I'd even say more thinking about what are the right sources of evidence and how can we concentrate that evidence to make people more likely to, to take action.
meaning credibility, like a, 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 a source with a lot of credibility, credibility behind it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'd even say the following, you know, even if someone's very credible tells you they like something, that's yeah. one piece of evidence, but they can tell you they like it till they're blue in the face. That's still one person's opinion. What you're still trying to do is go, okay, and I know you like it and you may be a very yeah. credible source, but well, I like it, right? What does the fact that you like it mean for, for me, right? There's a sort of a translation going on, a translation problem. And if there's always one person, I can always say, well, it's you, you like things, you're a certain person, but if there's five people, it's much harder to go, well, wait, if five people like it, I'm probably gonna like it as well, particularly the more similar they are to me and the more that evidence is concentrated, the more it's gonna drive action. Jonah, what, what brands do you see that do a great job at this? And what brands do you see that have made a mistake with this? Are there examples you can share with us? You know, uh, I, I don't think of just brands. I think even of organizations as a whole, right? So think about the situation we're in at the moment with, uh, with COVID, right? Uh, and the coronavirus. And, you know, uh, the government and public health organizations did the same thing they've done for decades. If they want people to do something, tell them to do it wear a mask. You know, if they want people not to do something, you know, don't go grocery shopping, stay at home. They told them not to do it. And the problem, what that does is that often induces reactants, right? If someone tells you not to do something, even if you might be willing to do it in the first place, the fact that they told you to do it makes you less interested in doing it. Don't, don't tell me what to do, right? We essentially have an anti-persuasion radar where we want to feel like we're making our own choices. If we feel like someone's selling us, if we feel like someone's trying to persuade us, our defenses go up, right? That brick wall goes up. We ignore the message. We avoid it. Or even worse, we counter argue. We sit there and think about all the reasons why what that person is suggesting no is a bad idea, yeah. why it won't work, right? Why it's, it's not going to be effective. And so instead, we have to figure out how to reduce reactants by allowing people to make those choices for themselves, right? So, um, uh, you know, think about in the health case, right? Uh, rather than telling people, well, wear a mask or don't do this, you know, instead ask a question. You could say something like, hey, uh, you know, um, imagine your uh, child was around or your elderly grandparent. Would you want everyone else to wear a mask? Well, that person says yes, right? Then you can say something, well, why aren't you wearing a mask uh, at the moment, right? Highlighting a gap between their attitudes and their action, right? Not telling them what to do, but encouraging them to go, wait a second, if I would want other people to do something, why aren't I doing that thing? Or other things, you know, I, I talk about providing a menu, essentially basically giving people choice. You know, if, if you're in a meeting, a sales meeting, for example, and you're telling everybody, hey, this is what you should do. This is the course of action you should take. Everyone's sitting there and they seem like they're listening, but really what they're doing is thinking about all the reasons why what you're suggesting is not going to work. It's going to be too expensive. Of course, you would say it's good. You're the salesperson. How are we going to integrate this with our existing solutions? You know, they're basically doing, doing counter-arguing. If instead, what great salespeople do, great consultants do, is they give people a choice. They don't just give them one option, they give them multiple. A or B, A, B or C, because what it does is it shifts the role of the listener. Now, rather than sitting there thinking about all the reasons why they don't like what you're suggesting, instead they're sitting there going, huh, which of these do I like better? which makes them much more likely to pick one at the end of the meeting. Because what you've done is you've provided a menu. You've given them that freedom of choice. And because they feel like they're free to choose, they're much more likely to pick something. Uh, who, who in your life was very good at doing this to you? 
<laughs> you know, uh, I've been asked this question before. Um, and what I think is very funny is I don't think my friends, uh, my colleagues or my spouse would say I'm particularly persuasive, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't go, oh, Jonah, you know, he's really great uh, at, at changing uh, everyone's mind. So uh, hopefully this book has helped me by learning these techniques, <laughs> uh, become better at it. Uh, because I, I think, you know, often uh, we see these things in a particular domain, but we don't apply it as widely uh, as we could. Like reactants, for example, right? Um, you know, maybe we've tried that with our kids where we say, oh, you know, uh, telling them to put their pajamas on isn't working. Telling them to eat their vegetables isn't working. But saying, do you want to put your pajama top or your bottom on first? Do you want to eat your broccoli or your chicken first? That yeah. does, right? We've come across some of these ideas in some of our life, but rarely do we make the connection across different domains of life. And so what I think has been needed about this book is to see these tools in action uh, in so many different places and to start using them more uh, in my own life as well. I guess what I was asking was who was good at doing this to you, like a parent, <laughs> father, mother, who was who was good at getting you to believe that you're making the choice on a decision you're making? <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, I, I, I think people do this uh, often. Uh, uh, in, in my life, uh, at least, in, in one way or another. They um, reduce uncertainty. So, you know, uh, think about companies that have given free shipping uh, away to, to encourage people to take action, like the, the Zappos of the world, or think about uh, companies that use freemium, like Dropbox or like Pandora, that lower that upfront cost that get us to try things. They haven't focused on reactants per se, but they've certainly alleviated uh, uncertainty uh, is, is one thing they've, they've done quite well. Um, uh, you know, uh, my brother, in some ways, is done a good job with ass of his of, of shrinking distance. And so uh, I think different people have used different tools and it's been great to bring them all together. Very cool. So let's talk about a couple different things here and then we'll wrap up. So uh, are you following any of the presidential campaign? I have a little bit. Yes. Uh, who do you not think, not heavily, you know, but a little. Who do you think is doing a better job uh, getting their message out there? And are you seeing patterns that they're using that have to do with both contagious and catalyst? Yeah, I mean, I'll say a couple things. Um, uh, you know, uh, Contagious came out uh, before uh, the 2016 election. So obviously, I couldn't talk about the 2016 election in that book. But um, if you look at both what Obama ran on and what Trump ran on, um, they ran on something very similar, though different in some ways. Uh, Obama ran on hope, inspiration. Trump ran on anger uh, and anxiety. Both of them used high arousal emotions to drive people to share their message and use that to drive action. And that's something I talked a lot about in Contagious, right? Uh, often we think it's about functional reasons. Uh, in politics, for example, it's all about the bills and the policy details and all those things. But I think if the last few elections have taught us anything, it's stories, emotional stories, whether positive or negative, uh, as long as they're high arousal emotions. So anger and anxiety are not the same as hope and inspiration, but both of them fire us up uh, to mm. take action, right? Uh, you know, think about seeing a snake, right? We get scared. That fear motivates us to take action, run away. Hope and inspiration excites us and motivates us to take action. And so both candidates leverage that in different but interesting ways uh, to motivate action. I think you've seen the same thing more recently, right? Um, where, um, you know, Biden, who used to be a very sort of policy person, is still talking about policy, but talking much more in a stories and emotional way. Trump has always tended to talk in stories in terms of stories and emotion and really use that to rally uh, his, his base. And so I think you're seeing both candidates realize, particularly in today's day and age, it's not information uh, or policy proposals necessarily that drive action, whether fortunately or unfortunately, and I think often unfortunately, it's often stories and sound bites that are packaged and understand the fact that high arousal emotion drives sharing that ultimately drive action. 
What, what are your thoughts with media on, on the direction media is taking on how to either change people's minds uh, uh, and influence them to, you know, think one way or another? What, what role is media playing by using some of these strategies that you're talking about to get their message out there? Are you seeing that taking place? What I think is interesting is the media is much more fragmented. Than it, than it used to be, right? So it used to be if you wanted to change people's minds, you know, the best thing you could do would be to buy an ad on one of the major networks because everybody would see it. The problem now, first of all, nobody watches television. Very few people watch television. Many fewer people watch watch television. And even if they do, there are now so many different channels that people are watching uh, that the audience is much more fragmented. And even if they're theoretically watching a television mm -hmm. channel, they're probably also on their computer. They're probably also looking at Twitter or something else while they're doing it. Um, and so the attention's not there. That it, that it might uh, have been in the past. What I think is so neat about social media, and if you really think about the term of, of social media, what it is at the core is everyone has their own media channel. Right? Each of us has a set of followers who yep. probably don't see everything that we post, but in some sense are tuning into to our channel. And so this fragmentation makes it a lot harder for one message to hit everyone at the same time. That said, sharing becomes even more important. Right? Because people are turning to social, because people are turning to their peers for their news and information, sharing becomes a much more important way than traditional advertising to get a message out there. Not only is traditional advertising much more expensive than, than word of mouth, which is free, but it's much less persuasive. And so I think we have to understand how word of mouth works and we have to understand how to change minds. Otherwise, it's really hard to get our ideas, get them out there. Goes back to you talking about the power of one-on-one -on -one and word of mouth marketing, which is you know, uh, uh, more important because if you can win one-on-one, -on -one, if you can win through word of mouth, you're going to potentially be able to compete with these guys that have the bigger budgets to advertise on TV and spend the tens of millions of dollars they're doing. It's almost like the great equalizer with what's going on today if those that can learn on the one-on-one -on -one side. So here, here's, a, here's another question for you. Uh, going back to, I asked it from you earlier, and we kind of went through the process of both of your books. Now the audience kind of has an idea what was disgusting and uh, contagious. And what was discussed in the catalyst. And my recommendation, if you're watching this, it's one one hundred of what he talks about in the book. So we're going to put the links below for you to buy. I'll be very transparent with you guys. I've not read the catalyst, but I've read the contagious. I don't know how many times it's a, a every marketer needs to read contagious. And based on some of the other five markers, I need to go buy myself the latest book, which is the catalyst. But, you know, when you watch uh, folks out there who are storytelling, okay, You'll see The Rock who gets out there and uh, a crisis is taking place. And he has a method of telling the story that resonates with an audience, okay? You see Ben Shapiro, different style. You see Candace Owens, different style. You see AOC, complete different style. You see a J-Lo, different style. You, you see these musicians, these artists, these politicians, these pundits that are going out there telling their stories how, how do you see it where somebody else can say, I mean, I, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, does somebody watch and say, you know, I can't be like that person's style. It just doesn't fit my yeah. personality. I re resonate with this person's style. What, what does one do to match to the other person's uh, style? Because sometimes you see people are acting, like you said earlier, when you said, uh, um, I think in one of the videos, you said how um, you saw one commercial where Joe Montana was wearing Skechers <laughs> shoes and you said, I just don't believe you. Is Joe Montana broke? Does he need yeah. to make money? Like it just didn't make any sense. And I agree with you yeah. when I saw that I'm, I went to the state when I first time watched that commercial of Joe Montana, I said, 
I just don't see Joe as Skechers. It doesn't make any sense to me, right? Yeah. So he must owe somebody does, money, right? <laughs> how, how does one align their personality and style to the messaging to be able to still make impact and change people's minds? Yeah, I think this builds on something you uh, very nicely said before, which is, um, you know, we don't have to be uh, the best communicator to win. I think some of us think, you know, oh, I have to be really persuasive person. I have to be, um, you know, very charismatic. I have to be all of those things. And to, to be a, a movie star, you, you probably do. Um, you know, to be an elected official, you, you probably do. To be a successful business person, you, you don't have to be th those things, right? Um, you have to understand what your audience is interested in, the, the ideas that they care about, how they process information, how their minds works, because you can tell a story. Let's say you're a great storyteller. You tell one person that story. That person may go, oh my God, you're an amazing storyteller. But if the story itself isn't amazing, they're not going to pass it on. They'll listen to you, but to have the impact you want to have, to have the multiplier you want to have, yeah. you've got to get other people to tell your story. And so think about a joke teller, for example. Some of us are great joke tellers, right? You go to a party, someone tells a joke, everybody laughs. Yeah. But some jokes are so powerful that regardless of who tells them, the joke propagates, right? Because it's just a funny joke. And so it's not the messenger, it's the message. And that's really, I think, one of the main things I would, I would take away from the, the stuff that I've written and the work that I've done, right, is not just being a great communicator. Sure, it's great if you're really persuasive and confident and charismatic. That's great. But even if you're not, if you're shy, if you're timid, you can still engineer great ideas by building great messages, right? Great messages share themselves. When you get an audience excited about an idea because that idea is so great, they'll go tell other people even when you're not in the room. And so if we're charismatic, sure, the people in the room will go, oh my God, that was great. But they'll do a terrible job of telling other people about it because you're no longer in the room. If the message itself is powerful, it leaves the room with those people and shares itself generation upon generation. Yeah, I like that. Great messages shared themselves. That's a very powerful statement. You got to have a story for a person who want to share your story rather than you constantly telling your story. It's got to be shareable. Uh, uh, final thoughts here before we wrap up. You know, pandemic is looking like it's coming to an end here. The cases are lower. That's our lower. I'm in Texas. You know, restaurants are going back to 100%. A lot of them, people are still wearing masks to wear masks. But how much of an opportunity is there for a small business owner or an entrepreneur to use this as a way to tell a story to get the customers to want to come back to them or, or even get new customers to come and want to do business with them. Is there a big opportunity today with storytelling on regaining trust or gaining the trust of new customers? S certainly. I mean, I think, um, you know, as we've discussed a bit, you know, now is a time of huge uncertainty. People hate uncertainty. They want to do the same thing again and again. They've been forced to change in almost every area of their life. Um, and while that's certainly difficult for people and has been quite difficult, it's also an opportunity. Because people have been forced to change, they're looking for new products and services and brands. You know, if you uh, read some of the articles, the trends and what people are buying have been amazing to see, right? You know, people are buying home gym equipment, then they're buying teaching equipment for their kids. You know, the next thing is supposed to be, I don't know, outdoor fire pits as it gets colder for, for winter. Um, and so people are saying, I'm in an unusual situation. How do I deal with the situation? And they're looking to their peers and others to figure out what to do. But what that means is, look, if you're a smaller brand, if you're a smaller company or organization, people haven't used you in the past, now's a great opportunity to get some more traction. They're willing to open up to challenger brands and organizations they haven't worked with before because it's a time of uncertainty, but I think we can turn that uncertainty into opportunity, right? I've seen lots of organizations use this to say, hey, 
free trial, right? Um, I know stuff, your life's tough at the moment. Money's a little tough. Free trial. Free trial's great because it's going to give people the experience to figure out whether they like what you're doing, and then they'll, they'll stick with you, right? And so I think great brands or great companies, great organizations are using this time, not as one of uncertainty, but by turning that uncertainty to opportunity, by knowing what people need, understanding those needs, and working to meet them. I'm certain anybody that's in business, a C-suite executive, founder, entrepreneur, salesperson, took a lot uh, away from, uh, took away a lot from today's uh, meeting with you. Uh, Joan, I appreciate your time. Congrats on your success with your books and spending nearly 20 years going to school, studying everything that has to do with human behavior and marketing. I wish you nothing but the best, and I'm looking forward to reading many more books of you to come in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. So first of all, if you've never read the book Contagious, I highly recommend it. We'll also put the link to both of his books below for you to go out there and order. But I'm curious to know how you took away from the message on what you can do to have your message become more contagious based on the strategies that he shared with you. Comment below. And if you've never watched a video I did a couple years ago explaining the difference between marketing and sales, click over here to watch that video. And if you're not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.